Jeff, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Nice to be here. In person. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Um, You guys have a lot going on. Everyone's excited about the technology on the hardware uh, platform. Vast, of course, is a software company, but you know you need the hardware to enable what you're doing. For those that may not be familiar, what's reset what what Vast is and, and what the core mission is? Sure. So the core mission essentially comes down to just simplifying customers' lives by building infrastructure that is way easier to deploy and manage than they've ever been able to. And so I didn't say storage here, but storage is a big part of what we do. And as we looked at the market when we started the company, there was basically like all these reasons people were buying these types of systems or that. Some of them were software related. Some of them had to do with hardware, like making decisions on tiered infrastructure and these types of things. And as we kind of sized up your average data center, all we saw was complexity of people just trying to manage all these different types of systems that express some trade-off between performance and capacity and scale and capability. And we started to think, well, how can we make this easier for people? And the first general conclusion is that we needed to essentially remedy the problem that was in the industry where you had all these different cost structures for storage media that forced people to go and tier their data centers, right? And build these tiered data storage environments where you're moving data back up and down these tiers based upon some sort of like cost mandate that you have within the company. And we thought, well, if it would be possible to bring a flash system to market that had hard drive cost points, then people wouldn't need to do these types of things anymore. And so the original thinking was, okay, let's build a data management system that uh, brought an altogether new economic envelope to the table with respect to flash TCO. And so the second thing that happens is you kind of make that decision is, okay, well, once you've solved the capacity problem of flash, then customers are going to want to put all their data on it. And so you need to build a system that can scale in a very simple fashion as well. And you need a system that breaks the scalability limits of conventional architectures because all these new machine learning, deep learning, analytics applications are coming online. And they're very different from how systems worked with storage in the past where, you know, if you have like transaction processing systems, you're just trying to persist a write as fast as you can. But in the modern world, people want to just analyze gobs and gobs of data. The original name for VAST was actually random read. Oh, I thought you were going to say gobs data. Gobs data. No, that's not <laughs> that bad. It's better than random read. <laughs> so It's not much better. Ren and our CEO came up with that name. And I, and I always say, you know, if you can imagine the press release, like Digital Equipment Corporation acquires random read incorporated for, I don't know what, in 1983. So... That was a terrible name, um, but then this kind of idea of something that's big and fast came into our mind, and we realized that um, Vast made it good for a good name. And um, what we built is a next-generation systems architecture that uh, consists of a lot of low-cost flash that is essentially managed in a new way, uh, where we've broken a, a, a fundamental architecture paradigm that's been around for the last 20 years, invented by Google, um, they wrote a white paper called uh, about the Google file system. Mm. And the general principle was, hey, we don't need to buy these expensive dual controller arrays anymore. We can build a new type of storage architecture out of commodity server nodes. You fill them with hard drives and you scale those out to get to whatever capacity or performance point you're trying to hit. Well, that 
I think nobody really knows about that paper, but if you look in the infrastructure space today, almost every architecture out in the market, ranging from storage to databases, everybody's replicated that concept. I mean, it's pervasive in the hyperconverged space, but it's also the basis for modern data warehouses, everything from like Hadoop to um, your data lake technologies, um, all the way to file and distributed block storage systems where You've got these nodes that have either flash or hard drives in them, and you just kind of stamp these out to get to whatever capability you want. And then in 2015, we realized, well, okay, there's this new storage protocol that's on the horizon called NVMe over fabrics, and people can actually disaggregate infrastructure, right? You can build systems that are designed of containers, and these containers can get real-time, like direct access level, uh, or excuse me, direct attached level, storage access without having to actually own any SSD mm-hmm. exclusively. So NVMe over fabrics becomes a game changer because you can now start to think about composable data centers. But the problem there is that, it, you know, that's only one part of the, the solution that's required to make that happen. The second is now that you've got all these containers that are all stateless and they can connect to any number of drives, well, you have to solve for scalability by making sure that these containers don't need to coordinate I.O. operations with each other. And so that's where the the shared everything part of the new architecture that we've designed called DAYS comes in, disaggregated, shared everything. And imagine a data structure that lives in low-cost flash where you can basically have 1,000 or 10,000 containers all managing and accessing the same data. Now you can get to that scale point that I was talking about earlier that has been a real problem in the market up until now, because typically when you build distributed storage systems, let's use storage as an example, as updates happen to the system, what happens is these nodes have to all talk to each other. And so there's like this law of diminishing returns that kicks in as people scale, particularly if you're like accessing common data from multiple machines, it's a disaster. And so we realized that disaggregation, if you, uh, if you build a, a new type of data structure that supports uh, a shared everything model, that could solve that problem. Hmm. And so, so now we've got this system that can scale pretty much linearly. Um, and the architecture essentially is designed to execute a new class of codes. We call them global codes. And these algorithms are essentially designed to get really, really strong efficiency out of storage. First thing that we do is um, we shape writes as they go through the system using a combination of storage class memory and low-cost flash such that we basically organize RAID stripes of data that has a common life expectancy. So there's no write amplification or kind of like um, or flash wear that's happening inside the system as it's dealing with updates and transactions and stuff like that. It's all very pristine with respect to the flash drive Erase block. Let me ask you about the the coding there because the software, when you start talking about QLC Mm -hmm. specifically, it needs to be talked to in a very gentle voice, right? If you're wanting to write to it, it wants to be, in in this case, with the 5316s, um, 64K blocks, right? So you've got to do some work there to to manage the QLC nicely. Well... The, the drive controller has a block, like a variable block size. You could write a 1K block, you could write sure. whatever. The flash manufacturers don't actually advertise what the erase block size is within the drives. Uh, and I don't know if it's a trade secret or anything like that, but we <laughs> just let it out anyway. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you what we've discovered. <laughs> we have discovered that if you write anything less than a contiguous gigabyte down into these drives, hmm. 
you're basically going to encourage that drive to wake up and start to do its own garbage collection and start to wear itself down. Right. So you're trying to mitigate that to we do. get more longevity out of the system. We do. So we do it through a form of log structuring, right? It's a write-in free space storage system. So even if an application comes in and overwrites a piece of data, that just goes into a, na a new RAID stripe and we kind of mark that bad block as invalid and we go and clean it up later. Um, but the real secret sauce comes from uh, a, having the luxury of time because we've got this big distributed write buffer in storage class memory, but B, watching the write patterns of different applications such that you can start to make determinations about how long a block will live. And so you put these into, you know, I, earlier I said it's log structure, but it's not a proper log where first in, first out, um, we have a series of buffers that we're filling simultaneously within the system. And so because of that, um, we can see, okay, this is temporary data. This is archive data. And so you put the archive data into an archival rate stripe. You put the temporary data into a temporary rate stripe. And so as the temporary data gets deleted, it all kind of gets deleted around the same time. We don't have to move data around the system uh, in order to kind of clean things up. And so that's the really nice part about it. It's, uh, it's a process that Intel previously called write shaping. And um, what we showed them is that you can get like 20 times longevity out of these drives if you write not contiguous 64K blocks, but contiguous one gigabyte blocks down to flash. So it sounds smart, mm -hmm. but it take this with the, <laughs> the respect that, that, that is owed. It doesn't seem like it should be all that hard. Like why haven't others done this? Because high, the, the effective hybrid array that you're talking about with SCM in front of QLC is not a new notion, right? No, people use memory in the past. Sure. So, but why haven't they figured out how to take advantage of new media as it's come out? Well, you have to, okay, so the, I think the first thing to consider is that SCM is relatively new, right? It just started shipping around 2016 or so. Uh, and then prior to that, you, have, you would have to use like either SuperCap or battery backed DRAM. Oh, yeah. And you saw all those abominations over the years. Right, right. Some of them are still, and very popular vendors still ship these types of products. And the problem becomes the cost. Cost in two primary dimensions. One is what's the cost of actually just filling up a large RAID stripe? Because these RAID stripes, remember, it's a one gigabyte block times mm -hmm. n number of blocks that you use to create a RAID stripe. You're talking about tens or hundreds of gigabytes in our case. So what's the cost to actually build a buffering system that can buffer with that level of uh, capacity? Well, with DRAM, it's really expensive. But the second consideration is the larger one. Because if that's going into some sort of memory-based write buffer, well, then the question is how many other nodes need to know that that data has hit the buffer? And all architectures previous to VAST had either a cache coherency bus between two controllers mm -hmm. or some sort of distributed message passing system across, like, let's say, an InfiniBand fabric. If mm -hmm. you're talking about something like Isilon, where all this stuff needs to be communicated. A whole second network just for stuff like that. But it's not the cost of the network. It's the cost of the operation. And at some point, you have so many updates that have to happen for cache management, cache invalidation. And you really want to get this right because memory is... It's a bitch from a power perspective um, that it, it just slows down systems where you're trying to get the opposite effect of scaling them up. Mm -hmm. And so you've got something that, that is expensive. Uh, it's expensive from an IO operation perspective. And then the third component is that um, cache and cache coherency across clusters has ultimately been the biggest bugaboo for enterprise systems vendors. Like, you know, if you look at uh, average DU 
data, data on available data loss reports for some of the largest companies that we've worked at previously, 98% of the problems related to cash. So we get rid of cash altogether, then you don't have that problem. We just think of SCM as just a, a, a persistent buffer within the system. And so you need a new architecture that knows how to have n number of machines right down into that buffer without competing with each other. And previously, they all would have had to been talking to each other. So once you get there, you get to um, really nice economic profile for Flash, right? Because you've got a really small amount of SCM, which costs like a 20th of what you'd pay for DRAM. Today, we have support for both Intel's Optane and Kioxia's uh, FL6 Flash. And by the way, that's not insignificant. We haven't seen Kioxia out there a lot in the market. So you guys are doing something kind of neat there, being able to yeah. multi-source your SCM, which is not always the case. Uh, the drives, they do behave slightly differently, but from the system perspective, we try to kind of, um, I would say, make that transparent to the user experience. And we've done yeah, that effectively. They shouldn't ultimately know. But to be fair, like you use Avnet, I think, right, to fulfill your Avnet your does the manufacturing. Okay. And so if a customer wanted to, had a, a, a preference, that yeah. would, it doesn't make any difference to you. Oh, we don't care. Right. We don't care. Um, now, so you can build a system that has the endurance of a much more expensive TLC or, or even uh, MLC drive, and you can keep it on the floor for up to 10 years. We, we track our fleet of systems uh, through a, a call home utility that we run for our customers. And no system in the field has used more than 10% of their erase cycles. And so they still have 90% of the wear left in the systems after three years of deployment. And we feel like there's an infinite amount of longevity in these devices if you write to them the right way. And so we support the drives for up to 10 years uh, in terms of field deployment. And um, as we kind of go to market, even our commercial terms say that you can get full replacement of a drive if you ever hit some sort of endurance challenge. Most vendors, particularly ones that are dealing with transactional environments, couldn't think to do that. Is that on your SCM or does that include your QLC? Everything. Everything. And what's what's the standard warranty on the QLC? Five, Five years. years. Yep. So you're you're able to effectively double that by being intelligent in the way that you yep. handle your rights and cleanup. But the but the the third part of this is is also interesting um, in terms of adopting these new technologies. Think about Flash. Every system vendor in the marketplace is building transactional Flash storage, and so as you want to park a piece of data into a Flash drive, everybody thinks IOPS, right? And data structures for IOPS-oriented flash systems are typically very small. So it works counter to how people think about using QLC, right? Um, because you've got this large, like in our case, we implement one gigabyte stripes. And you've got customers that want to write at 4K increments, you know, database style or something like that. And so that's where SCM also becomes advantageous because you can write into storage class memory with any sort of block size or alignment get really transactional I.O. support, and then destage large contiguous white writes down to flash after the fact to kind of shape the write appropriately. So the first global code is just doing global flash wear leveling such that you can get 10 years of longevity out of uh, very low endurance flash. That's where customers get a good cost basis to basically start building storage on top of. Second thing that we do is uh, a new type of data protection code, an erasure code, mm -hmm. um, RAID code, you can think of it as. 
And here we challenged ourselves to get the overhead for RAID down to 1% without compromising on the system availability. We didn't get all the way to 1%. Today we're at 2.7% for scalable clusters. We could go higher if we wanted to, but there's kind of a law of diminishing returns at some point. So at 2.7%, what we do is we build very large RAID stripes. Imagine uh, 146 plus 4 at full tilt. Okay. Why hasn't this been done before? Well, first reason is that typically a CPU would never be able to write to 150 drives in one shot. But we build really big disaggregated clusters where our CPUs can write to hundreds or thousands of drives. If you open up one of the containers that runs our software, you'll see every flash drive mapped to that machine as if it's local. And so they don't have to communicate with any other machine in order to write have down the stripe. The drive, yeah. Two is you need a big write buffer to write that wide, right? And earlier I said it's expensive and volatile, and that's a problem. So we solve that with storage class memory. But the big difference here is number three, which is the erasure code. And so typically if you're building a wide write striping system, uh, first thing that happens is the probability of failure goes up, right? Because your, your failure domain gets to like 150 devices. Well, that's more probable than the kind of low case with conventional RAID codes. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing that happens is that your time to rebuild also goes up equivalently, right? Because you have these, um, these erasure codes historically that have had to read through all of the data in the RAID stripe in order to recover it. Well, if your RAID group is um, has a higher probability of failure and you have a longer time to recover these two problems compound with each other so we said okay we need to break away from reed solomon which is basically what everybody uses for erasure protection uh, and here we adopted a new type of data protection that we call um, locally decodable codes and the way that codes work is essentially if the each of the parity devices is slightly different and um, when something fails, we only have to read from one-fourth of the stripe and then all of the remaining parity drives. And so essentially, we can rebuild at the same time as like an 8 plus 2 based hard drive RAID group. Uh, but you've gotten a 2.7% overhead. And at plus 4 data protection, you basically have like two exponents greater availability and mean time to data loss than you would have with something that's plus 2 based. So customers get something that's more resilient. And at the same time, they pay a lot less for RAID. So you, you take cheap, flat, cheap flash, and then you get like a lot more usability on top of it. The last thing we do is something that I think is most equivalent to what you would think of as global compression. Mm -hmm. And essentially, um, the system can uh, run a hashing algorithm against all the blocks that come into the buffer. And as opposed to a deduplication system that would look for an exact match block using cryptographic hashing, our hashing function basically looks for things that are close enough to each other to basically start allowing us to compress them against each other. Hmm. So uh, that's why I call it global compression. Um, and the way that it works is, you know, we basically do a distance calculation between the new block that's been hashed and all the other blocks that are in the cluster. We start to logically group similar data in the system. And then every new block that looks like the original one just gets compressed against it as a kind of a reference compression system. And so um, this hasn't been done before for a variety of reasons. A, the math is totally new. But B, if you think about conventional deduplicating storage systems, typically you'd have like an index in memory. And that memory need to, needs to be kept right next to the CPU that's servicing I.O. And so if you think about some of the most popular 
deduplicating storage systems in the market, data domain or flash blade or flash array, excuse me, from Pure. Um, typically, these systems only are dual controller because if you have to instantiate that index per every additional controller you add, we start paying more for memory than you're saving in storage. And so we realized that with disaggregation, this shared everything model means that the metadata, the, the, the index is equally shared across thousands of machines. It's way more efficient from a hardware perspective. And so um, this new approach, it basically goes global across all your data, like, uh, like um, kind of a global deduplication system would work at, at exabyte scale. But on the flip side, the pattern matching is way more fine-grained than deduplication. It goes down to just two bytes, so it's insensitive to noise. We see some like awesome stories with this. Um, well, how, how do you do that without eating a big computational hit on that? Because you talk about you, the rate hit being low. Sure. You, how, do, how do you do that? You do eat cycles. Sure. So, um, A, it's out of band. Um, the way that it works is the data flows into the SCM write buffer mm -hmm. and your application gets an acknowledgement back. So kind of in the background, what we're doing is we're running this hashing and compression algorithm against your data. But we do it before that data gets written down into Flash because we don't want to exercise the write cycles of the Flash drive. Right. got to do it before it gets to QLC. Yep. Yep. So, so we don't want to wear out the Flash. So we do it kind of in line. And, and the interesting thing is that the SCM buffer is the slowest part of the system. So we can harvest data off of it and run it through a lot of very powerful x86 machines uh, and ultimately stage that down into Flash. Now, from a read perspective, it's essentially free from an electronic perspective. Uh, you know, the, the um, what's called the decompression Mm -hmm. uh, happens within a little bit less than half a millisecond. So you don't pay a price for that, but you do pay for it in the read path, but that's kind of out of band from the application. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, historically, every time, I mean, you talked about two controllers and going scaling to more and how do you manage that, that metadata and those but tables. It, but the other consideration is like fiber channel and looped storage networks that are on the back of these systems right. previously like you can't go to can't build a loop larger than what you can build sure no well th there's also been dedicated appliances that have come out over the years that sort of want to sit in the data path and, and handle some of that compression oh, right. it, it just never those methodologies are don't work well without taking massive hits i mean we've seen 20 30 percent in traditional storage arrays mm -hmm. when you start enabling deduplication and compression and, and, and that's a fixed con constant, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't have any more CPUs you can throw at the problem. No. In our case, you can. So I'm not saying that there's no CPU impact, but if ever, customers ever say, oh, I don't like this latency or whatever, just throw a couple extra CPUs on it. There's no fixed ratio that you have to apply. So talk about that. What does that look like? Because I know you've got, um, with your partners, new hardware. I want mm -hmm. to get to that, and we'll, we'll tear into to that in a minute. But architecturally, what is a vast system? Because <laughs> you because you talk a lot about like the the architecture and the, uh -huh. the theory, but what like hardware? What is it? Sure. What is a vast system? That's like an existential question. <laughs> so, no, because that's the essence I, of vast. I, I saw you at uh, at SC back in, in last year in St. Louis and in the hyperscalers. I mean, they're buying things and doing very real things. I mean, it's obviously all real stuff. But how how do we think about it from a component standpoint. Okay, so I'm my first uh, caveat here is I hate the naming conventions. I understand I run marketing. 
and um, I just never overpowered our CEO and our head of R&D on this one. We have uh, three different types of kind of systems that compose a vast cluster. Okay. The first is uh, an enclosure. Think of that as a modern version of a JBOF. We've used single ported drives to keep the cost down, so we work with enclosures that we can essentially control in software and flip uh, the I.O. access between what we call two D nodes in the back of the system so that you can provide active active access to single ported devices. So we basically okay. take like the lanes of an SSD, we map two lanes to this server, two lanes to this server, and we control um, the PCI switches that basically manage these servers to the drives such that we can kind of fail them over, fail them back instantaneously. So we've kind of interposed everything in software. Um, now these enclosures, they're very dense. Uh, we have um, the unit that we've been kind of supporting up until now has uh, support for 44 drive slots, 44 flash drive slots. So that gets you to 1.3 petabytes of space into U of a form factor. Right, you've got some side loading stuff. You got yeah. all sorts of... Sanmina, uh, which is now Viking Electronics mm -hmm. manufactures the box. We didn't engineer it. We just kind of took something off the shelf. Oh, they make good stuff. Yeah, they do. Um, and so this, this Samina enclosure is kind of what we've been working with for a long time. Uh, and that becomes the capacity building block. You can okay. stamp these out to get to whatever capacity point you want. And obviously, you get performance as you start scaling up Flash in your environment. Is it conceivable to deploy one of these JBOFs? Yep. Or do you, okay. No single point of failure. Okay. So customers start with one. And as they grow, the erasure codes start to scale dynamically across these machines. Uh, and then when you get to a certain point, we stop scaling up the code. So we get started like 36 plus 4. You go to 146 plus 4, and then we just don't try to make the RAID any more efficient after that. You build big clusters, you're still at 146 plus 4. Now, the only knob you get to turn as a customer is if you don't like the idea that one enclosure could fail and you lose your data, you can turn on what we call D-Box RAID. And okay. that essentially allows you to just say, mark this, mark, mark the cluster such that it can support a whole rack scale failure. And we have customers uh, in the kind of the cloud space that have very, I would say, frugal data centers where they might have like one PDU per rack. And if mm -hmm. that PDU goes down, they don't the want whole, to lose the data whole, access. Yeah, the whole rack goes though, right? Right, yeah. So um, to solve for that, we basically built this one customer in what we call D-Box RAID. And it turns out pretty much any of our customers that now have more than 10 of these enclosures in a cluster, they, they tend to like to turn that on. Talk about those customers that are real value centric, though. And I know we didn't even finish the architecture thing, but um, <laughs> what were they buying before? Are they hard drives or other flash systems before they get introduced to what you're doing at Vast? Yes, both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we call it universal storage for the simple reason that it's just a marketing hack. Like we didn't know what to call it because we thought of it as defying classic categorization of different tiered storage systems. We wanted to build a product that took the decision-making out of building and deploying storage just by one thing that can do everything. And so we've got customers that use it for AI and backup and everything in between. Um, and so half of those customers have been buying hard drive-based infrastructure. Half of them have been buying flash systems and realized there's a more affordable path to achieve that mission. Most of them have both hard drives and flash. And we're basically saying you can consolidate that down and at the, at the average price per gigabyte that you're using your hybrid environment for, you can just get all flash. And that becomes the insurance policy against some of these modern applications. 
you know, ultimately I, I'll ask a, like a storage administrator, like, do you know what your applications are going to be doing in two years? And the answer is never yes. Right. And so well, not whatever they're doing now. Right. But the investments that they've been making, they're buying storage infrastructure for five years or more in certain cases. And so whereas they don't know what's going to happen, they've been buying infrastructure that hard codes them to a certain kind of pathology. And we're basically saying, here's your no cost insurance policy. And that's why people love us. So I think we got as far as the J-Boff. The D-Box. The, <laughs> the first terrible name. We have one thing. Yep, we got a D-Box. Okay. Okay, so you can have up to 1,000 of these D-Boxes in a cluster. It stands for data box. Everything gets interconnected via a set of switches. So um, we use NVMe over fabrics. We need 100 gigabit networking, at least. Uh, and that is what connects everything together. So these fabrics can be pretty big. Um, typically Mellanox, we also have support for Arista. Uh, and they need to connect between the enclosures and the systems that run our software, which are just x86 machines, compute nodes that we call C nodes. So when you talk about throwing more compute at a problem to be able to handle whatever, adjusting workflows or, or uh, more compression or whatever else is going on, that's mm -hmm. what you're saying is that we can slot in another compute node, yeah. C node, and just keep cruising. Yeah, yeah. It's it, all yours, online, all non-disruptive. So slot another one in, get the software in, and, and then it becomes aware of the others yep. in the cluster and then just yep. carries on. Sure. And so what's the resilience look like for the C nodes? Uh, it's basically like N minus one failures that can be supported. Remember earlier I said every C node is mapping to all the drives in the cluster. So mm -hmm. was, you could have a cluster of a thousand machines take an Uzi to 999 of them and still be entirely online. There's a very 90s reference. of you know, Uzis aren't popular? I don't think so. I think it's Kalashnikov probably. <laughs> yeah, they're very not. sensitive. It's, that's like a, a diehard reference, I think. An Uzi? Yeah. It just feels like that era, like something Bruce Willis would have used in like 96. I feel like if you're shooting an Uzi, you need two of them. Because you, well, have, you to have, have, one. have to have two yeah. with the little shoulder straps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like yeah. Rambo more than... Oh, yeah, but that's still the right timeline in the yeah. 80s or the 90s. My cultural reference sits between Rambo and Bruce Willis. <laughs> okay, so if you take the Uzis, I don't remember what you were shooting. Did you shoot the C nodes or the D nodes? C nodes. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so um, you can lose all but one of them and still be entirely online. Obviously, your performance is going to suck versus having like a thousand machines. But being available is important. Is important. Is important. And these nodes don't talk to each other. And so we see some interesting events where like a customer will have some sort of bad behaving application. And in any other storage system, that application would ruin the experience for everything else because, you know, these nodes all have to talk to each other. In our case, we contain that application to the nodes that it's mounted on, and none of the other nodes even feel the effects. And so <clears throat> one of the big things with respect to this idea of universal storage is like, let's just take customers to a point where they can just build large clouds of flash. And historically, customers have resisted this idea because you want to ensure performance fairness and if you have like some monster application that comes in and tries to eat up all your storage, everybody else suffers. We realized since these C nodes are stateless, there's no cache coherency code that runs across them or anything like that, and there's no communication that has to happen across them, we could build them into resource groups that we call pools. Mm -hmm. We can allocate pools to that monster application, and it can have its own dedicated ingress and egress infrastructure. And every other user in that environment can mount a different pool. And so they don't even feel the effects of some of these like really crazy applications and that's one of the paths to consolidation here so the pools are 
I mean, it's, it's almost like a controller then yep. in, in the way of a traditional infrastructure would think of it. It is a controller. It is. It runs standard controller functions. It does everything. It does writing down to Flash, reading from Flash. It does the erasure codes, the encryption, the compression, everything. I meant to ask, when you're talking about compression, what do you, what's normal there? And I know it depends on workload and whatever, yep. but in, in encryption and some other things. But what, what's common these days, or what do you see? So I can't use the word normal um, because there is no normal. The average is 3 to 1. Okay, so that's been pretty static then as a pretty good target for... It's all over the board. Customers uh, have different workloads, and they they reduce very differently. So we can't. There's no rule of thumb uh, outside of just looking at that workload. And let's say it's like I don't know, uh, some sort of you know kind of like data warehouse analytics workload. We could say okay, that's probably going to be like four to one data reduction. But you know we equally are used for things like movie production, and mm -hmm. there you've got compressed video going through our system, and maybe you see like 1.2 to 1. Would they even use it? Is that something that can be turned off, or is that always part? It secretly can, but we never turn it off for customers. But if you say it, it's not really a secret anymore, is it? It's, well, this is a talk amongst friends about Uzis. <laughs> Evidently. Uh, okay, so there's not really a practical reason to no. disable it. I, I, but, you know, there's also a philosophical approach here, which is, we want our engineering team to always work towards that that goal of saving customers more money and so if you let the customers turn off the erasure codes i think that kind of gives the engineers an out to say like oh well they're not using it so we're just going to kind of not look at that problem but when it's on everything's laid bare and so we can see exactly with every single customer precisely what they get but i think the thing to think about is like you know jeff's just said three to one data reduction that's not spectacular Mm -hmm. Right, you know, data domain came out 20 years saying you get 51. We're working in unstructured data, right? This is largely compressed data. And so, if you think about this similarity based data reduction I talked about earlier, half the time we're reducing data, it's after deduplication and compression. And so, we work with some of the leading backup partners in the world, like Commvault, for example. And Commvault mm -hmm. keeps their stuff on, they keep dedupe on, they keep mm -hmm. compression on. And after the data flows down into VAST as a target, we find additional gains because of this. Um, this new approach that we've made to, to data reduction. So you've got cases where you're being used for unstructured file storage, you're being used as backup target, you're being used as data lake uh, ultimately to get data into AI for analytics uh, or do the DGX or whatever and, and do some cool stuff there. Um, the workloads are entirely unpredictable. You start to get messaging that's kind of similar-ish to what the initial HCI messaging was of just put it all on here and, mm -hmm. and everything will be okay. Now, obviously, there's some scaling issues with, with HCI and you can't, you don't have the independence that you do here, but it's um, our customers finding that, that they start with you for a specific problem child or, or, or specific application need and then hey, this is pretty good and chuck a bunch of other stuff on it or how, what's the, the adoption path once you're into a customer. So there's a, um, a term that's used, I think, in, at least in the storage business, called land and expand. Mm. Uh, and, and we represent that in a big way. So, um, you know, we, we measure something called net, re net revenue retention, which is basically like, if you have a customer in the year previous, how much more have they spent with you at the end of the subsequent year? And our net retention is 300%, which means customers are kind of, on average, amplifying their investments 3x year over year. 
And so that's awesome. Now it's a function of A, the customers that we have today just starting to buy more, and B, you land more customers and then they ultimately grow over time as well. Um, and so our biggest biggest customers are now well over 100 petabytes under, manage, under management by us. And it is a ton of different workloads that you find ending up on our system. Like one very large auto manufacturer we work with, they run their Splunk on our system, they run their car R&D, they run their CCTV for their factories, hmm. they run their robotics platform, and I'm forgetting one other thing that they run. Oh, their backups run on our system. So surveillance workloads can be pretty nasty too. I think so. Um, you know, surveillance typically is thought of as overhead. Like nobody likes buying CCTV infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And so um, we tend to not chase those types of deals. People don't want or expect performance. It's largely regulatory tax in a lot of cases. Um, but we work with a lot of computer vision applications independent of that, that you know, people actually want performance from video and imagery. So it really depends on the different markets. Well, sure. I mean, once you can do the analytics on on the people and whatever activities that it is that you want to track, mm -hmm. there's there's more intelligence to be gained there than just yeah, after the fact some legal responsibility slip fall something, right? I think so, but you need to be. <clears throat> I, I largely think that that's being done by the camera manufacturers, right? They're trying to figure out the algorithms to do all that training internally, and then ultimately they're just capturing events which might be a very small entity, and then they send that back to like a security person or something like that. All right. Uh, did we leave any parts out? We've got D node, C node, network. That's it. Well, that was easy. So why do we stop at a thousand? Is that just where your customers have pushed you, or is there some? We're not there. We're not at a thousand yet. Um, our biggest clusters are in the hundreds. Uh, there's no. I think the the fundamental kind of barrier to mega mega clusters is going to be the network. You know, we're starting to, in certain cases, use InfiniBand director switches just because you have so many ports. Mm. within these machines and you can build spine leaf topologies out of them uh, and then there are port boundaries for those types of networks as well and at that point it just kind of gets a little crazy so we're thinking a thousand enclosures gets you uh, an exabyte usable um, after data reduction if you go and average three to one three exabytes I can do that math you're you're like a math genius um, what else do you need I could use that math genius when I was uh, struggling with geometry. Uh, Mrs. Smith would be really proud to know that I was called a math genius this late in my life. She would have never believed it <laughs> back then. Mrs. Smith. Yeah. I was Mr. Kiesling. <laughs> I failed calculus three times. Wow, that's impressive. That's not impressive. Uh, yeah, it's really hard to do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> three times in a row. The content doesn't change in calculus. It's true, it's true. I didn't yeah. really try that hard to Oh, it's more of an effort issue. <laughs> well, and a brain issue, but I got it. D is for diploma as far as I'm concerned. Confidence. <laughs> um, okay, so that's that's architecture. That's really cool. Um, what else? I mean, so your software guys, you've got to be thinking about data services, other stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm not asking you to pre-announce your roadmap, but is there something that uh, customers are asking for that... Uh, that you guys want to work on, that you've talked about working on? Like where, where else do you go from the software side? What else has to be added to, to continue to improve? Um, so there's a lot I can't talk about, but what I can say is that AI is transforming people's relationships with data. 
Um, and the way that these codes get more accurate is by going back to that data and, and learning and learning and relearning from them, retraining on them. Uh, and so we started to think about what the, the kind of market impact of, of deep learning and artificial intelligence would be. And we don't consider ourselves um, analysts by any respect. But um, we also noticed that ARC uh, Invest, like Kathy Wood's investment company, mm -hmm. she's starting to call an infrastructure number around AI that's basically backed by an idea around how much value could be created in the market from artificial intelligence over the next 10 years. She basically says that that opportunity alone is going to be like $87 trillion. Now, if you look at the total sum value of all of the equities markets right now, it's about $80 trillion. Okay. So you're talking about something that's the same size as all of the world's stock markets. Put together. Going to happen in the next 10 years. And we're starting to see evidence of some really big investments that people are making to kind of support that thesis. But if it's true... And you start to think through, okay, well, what do, what do the stacks look like over time that can solve the needs of training and inference? Well, what we can say is that it's probably not going to be a combination of Oracle on VMware on EMC, which we think of as like kind of the last 20-year stack for mm -hmm. digital transformation. Oh, gosh, I hate that one. It sucks. Right? Everything's <laughs> digital transformation. <clears throat> well, I thought we were done with it about three years ago, but it's still digital transformation is still happening, it's, apparently. It's going to be. Um, now, we view digital transformation as the, if, if you kind of have an actual definition of it, it's the process of taking somebody and retraining them to use computers so that they can be more efficient, basically adapting people to computers. The next 20 years could be something that we call the natural transformation, where computers start to adapt to people. And if that's true, and the market is as big as that, what we say it is, if you look at the nature of the applications, they're all way different than how people have been computing in the past. Mm -hmm. And we believe a new stack will be relevant for that that could be built by Vast. Well, I mean, you certainly have a problem. The industry has a problem with how do you take massive amounts of data, keep it performant, and, sure. and get it into these systems for analytics, right? That's just the first step. Right. Well, the, but that's that's the one that's, that is a current struggle, and that's only step one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you're, I'm going to resist the urge to be teased too much here. All of these data companies out in the marketplace today um, are viewed as data storage companies, right? Mm -hmm. Any data platform, data lake, whatever. But if you look at what they're doing, they've all outsourced storage to S3. As, a, as not only a storage protocol, but also a system and oftentimes a service, right? If you go all the way to Amazon. And our realization is that people have kind of given up and assumed storage is solved. With an S3 Yeah, S3 initiator. is the Linguna Franca. So as long as we can connect to that, you can build whatever modern data management system you want. Would you describe S3 as a performant platform for AI? I think it can be performant. Okay. It is not always implemented with performance. But um, our realization is if you rethink everything at the infrastructure level, there are gains that can be realized higher up the stack that we will take the world to over the next couple of years. And that's a little forward-looking to that that uh, may be difficult to talk about. But aside from having a new architecture that's able to take advantage of new technologies, hardware and software, mm -hmm. um, to be able to 
fuel the analytics engines that are out there from NVIDIA and whomever else could be a player in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a heck of a lot more than just holding on to the, the bits and bytes, right? It is. And it's, it's the system-wide interaction and how do you move stuff. And I guess that's part of, we might as well get into it, some of the new hardware that your partners are, are putting together yeah. for this current launch. Um, the DPU is a major difference when you go look at the JBOF, your, your D-node. Why don't you talk about that a little bit and how it starts to get at some of these data transport challenges? I think it, it starts with that idea of disaggregation where we don't need to think about tightly coupling CPUs to SSDs. If you do that, then you have a lot of flexibility with respect to how to build systems that are ultimately the vessels for these SSDs. And you know, I, I like to use the analogy of the open compute project. You know, we got out of the hardware in uh, basically the end of 2020. Um, so we don't manufacture it, we don't engineer it or anything like that. But we do have real interests in understanding and specifying the hardware that ultimately drives universal storage. And so we made a call to the industry and we said there's a few things that are kind of just starting to emerge that we'd like to see industry solutions for. And the first of those, as you mentioned, is DPUs. Now, what is a DPU, a data processing unit that essentially, in our case, we use it as a modern equivalent to a SAS expander at the back of an enclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, it's NVMe over fabrics, which is supported by an adapter, such that we don't need to build a server that holds an adapter anymore to basically just run NVMe over fabrics target services. Like the worst application you could think of is for two Intel CPUs is just to set up a root complex and project that onto the network. And so a DPU allows us in a very small form factor, a very small power envelope, a very small cost envelope, it allows us to build intelligent enough enclosures that you don't need any other server hardware in. You just have big pools of SSDs that are exposed by DPUs out onto this NVMe fabric. And a couple power supplies. You do need power supplies. But there's, I mean, when you, I haven't looked at your box yet, we're gonna go see it later today, but Mm -hmm. I presume when you pop the lid, it's kind of vacant in there, aside from the length of the the rulers inside. It's pretty, well, um, there are a few of these systems that the, um, the market has kind of responded to and said, okay, we can make something like that. And so AIC is a Taiwanese manufacturer. They said, we could do this. Uh, and they built a 1U unit that um, has four DPUs in the back and has a collection of flash and storage class memory in the front. And so now in order to build like hyper dense systems, you don't need to play games like popping a lid uh, to get to the flash in the back. Right. You don't need to do things like organize drives on the side of the enclosure as we have in the past. And as a result, you just have something that's rear and front serviceable without having to deal with cable management and stuff like that. But on top of it, you get all of the depth that you would otherwise have from like a big stuffing of uh, two and a half inch drives that you put into an enclosure. And so these things, we, we stuff them with 22 uh, QLC drives. And that gets you to anywhere between uh, 338 terabytes per one U to 675. Uh, and the difference is either you use 15 terabyte or 30, 30 terabyte QLC. Now, if you think about rulers, uh, you know you know Howard Marks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
Howard's on our team and, and I asked him a question as we were kind of getting ready for the announcement. I was like, okay, well, there's more space in a ruler for flash. And we started to look at it and it's not true. You can, in a two and a half inch drive, you can put, you have the same amount of real estate as you have with a uh, standard ruler form factor. There's two PCBs that are mounted on each other in a two and a half inch drive and that's where they get to density. Um, a ruler is a single PCB, but it's way longer. And so what you get is 75% more surface area. Thermals. For thermals, mm -hmm. right? And if you have good thermals, you can maybe put some more transistors into a device. And so ultimately, we like rulers because we think we can help push the market more to getting the maximum capacity out of these drives. And the flash manufacturers we know have kind of been holding back because nobody's been asking for it. And now we're saying, give us drives that are 60 terabytes. Give us drives that are 200 terabytes. We don't care. We'll take whatever our um, our algorithms can handle. Uh, it's a fail-in-place architecture, and we can handle any sort of idiosyncrasies with failures. So just give us the densest, cheapest stuff you can get to. And rulers were kind of like the first push into, mm -hmm. into doing that. And on the back, if you don't have Intel or AMD servers, you just have like little ARM processors on network adapters. Well, it turns out that can be affordable too. So you've got this little 1U unit that's quite inexpensive. But since it's PCI Gen 4 and it's got a ton of flash in it, it's also really fast. So you come up with a, I mean, you start to hit at another point though of what do customers want. So the density is really cool, yeah. But there's also a lot of concern historically in the industry about getting too much storage into a single node, and that's probably due to concerns over rebuilds and things that are sort of, I almost said legacy, but I guess in your world that would be sort of legacy, mm -hmm. uh, multi or two controller rebuild the thing. You know, it takes a long time to rebuild a 200 terabyte SSD. When you have a failure like that, and now we're all front serviceable on this AIC node, for instance, I go up, yank the E1L, fire a new one in there. What happens in the vast world to rehydrate that drive and have it active and productive in as, in as short as time possible? Nothing. So that drive, that data has already been rebuilt and distributed across the remaining drives. It's fail in place. Mm -hmm. And so now you just have an empty drive sitting there. So we shouldn't think of it as a traditional RAID architecture where if I've got four drives in a RAID 5, one fails, I put one in, they got to rewrite all that stuff to fill that, that drive. That's not the that's No, not, not the at all. Not at all. That just becomes another device that's added to the cluster, essentially. So in, your, in the world of your customers, then there's less fear over blast radius, right, of, of drives failing or you know, even the node if they're in a multi-node setup. So we, we have all of our customers on Slack channels, and I don't think I've ever seen a customer talk about a drive failure impacting their operations. Do they? But they worry about it in, in the traditional dual controller world. I think you do. Well, I think maybe um, we compete, I think, less with dual controller systems and more shared nothing systems. Mm -hmm. And what you worry about here is a server failing more than a drive failing. Like everybody can rebuild a drive. Some architectures are not fail in place, so you have to actually put a new drive in for that to be participant in the RAID group to get healthy again. Um, we're totally de-clustered, distributed parity, we don't care. But at the end of the day, the, the bigger problem in the industry is, well, if you start to build clusters out of these, just stamping out large capacity, shared nothing nodes, and one of those goes offline, do the math on just like a, a 12 drive system using 30 terabytes, you've just lost 400 terabytes of data that you have to rebuild, right? Mm -hmm. So server failures are by far 
the more coarse thing that people have to be worried about today. And we find this kind of paradox with traditional scale-out NAS and object storage and even databases where you get to choose as a customer, your, you get to pick your poison, right? Either you can choose a very small node that has a little bit of data in it. And here, when that node goes down, you don't really care because it's not a ton of data. But the flip side is um, you have a lot more nodes to achieve a common capacity objective. So your probability of failure of one of those nodes goes up because you've got more servers than you have to babysit. Flip side, okay, I'm not gonna go thin nodes. I'm gonna build a small, a, a big like fat node. And so now you have less probability of failure across nodes, but when a node goes down, you have a really bad day. There's kind of like no win to that situation. So we wanted to adopt these like really high density drives and we didn't want customers to have to worry about those node failure problems. And that's where the disaggregated shared architecture comes in. So that's the AIC box that's, that's new. It is. That'll have SCM, mm -hmm. uh, QLC, E1L, right? The long rulers. Long rulers in there. Big, beefy ones. And if you take that, that new D node and you're an existing customer, can we just drop this in with yep. existing infrastructure so we don't need matched capacity or, or nope. any, any of these notions? I've been telling this story for years with the expectation that this is going to happen, and now it's here. So the interesting thing when you think about Flash is that as you add a transistor, you're adding both a unit of performance and capacity at the same time. So you, we can like get into the computer history museum and say, Let's look at uh, drives over the last 10 years. You can watch capacity and performance evolve on a linear curve. Mm -hmm. And so what we realized is that um, just like nobody, like you don't get an email from Jeff Bezos saying we're taking S3 down for the weekend to do a hardware migration. Not anymore. Maybe the early days. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, nobody wants to take their systems down for a migration or, you know, people just want to keep growing and growing and growing. Mm -hmm. And um, hardware evolves over time. And so... When we looked at it, we realized that as if and as we were to increment to PCI Gen 3 based systems, the drives would be twice as fast, but they would also be twice as dense. And so as capacity increments with performance, we can build systems of heterogeneous components and you can preserve the balance of performance and capacity, even though you're building a, a bunch of different stuff over time. So we build what's called an asymmetric cluster architecture. And customers can just grow of all sorts of different stuff. And, you know, after 10 years, I would expect some of these clusters would look like Frankenstein. But it all is just one big pool of flash that software knows how to manage. And a customer never has to think, well, is my data on this system or is that system? It's all completely abstracted away. Do your customers worry at all about this sort of Frankenstein's monster of stuff, though? Like, because even... In your, your prior nodes, your D nodes with the drives on the side, I mean, would they, did you get much pushback on, yeah, it's kind of weird, don't like it, or maybe ruler's kind of weird, don't understand it, I, or, or you know, perhaps your customers are more sophisticated and are, are great coupon users? They are smart. Um, you know, we sell to people that buy big. Our average software selling price is 1.2 million, right? That's just the software part. You also have to go buy hardware. That's probably another million or so. So the point is that, you know, the average purchase order to Vast is two million bucks if you include the hardware. So, and, and this is more sophisticated then. I think more educated, mm -hmm. meaning like when you get into these types of organizations, they have dedicated storage teams, people that are paid to really understand the nuance. And we made a conscious bet when we started the company. We said, okay, 
we can go mass market. We can build something that you know you could sell to every small to medium sized business. And the thought there is that well, over time those businesses are just going to consume cloud services. They're not going to be buying data centers and storage and stuff like that. And who will be left are either private cloud operators like legitimate ones or public cloud operators. And if we could be the arms merchant for both of them, then we win. And so, so far it's been a successful strategy, but the customers that we do work with are, I think, more storage savvy than your average. So less susceptible to some of like the initial FUD around QLC, can't handle rights or you know, whatever. Um, they have to be educated. Right. You know, our, our, in the early days, I wouldn't do a customer meeting, like before we came out of stealth mode, I wouldn't do a customer meeting for less than 90 minutes. And people got so pissed off about this. <laughs> and, um, and I would always take up more than 90 minutes because I, I, I just had to unravel me and Ren and a few other people, we just had to unravel all of these previous conceptions and then you build back up to what is the art of possible. Mm-hmm. So there's all this new stuff happening and you have to explain that to somebody that essentially gets paid to understand how new stuff can be done. But you're telling them that the world that they knew and thought they understood yes. is is now not no more, but is not the best case moving forward. Yep. Well, it's just there is a new art of possible. Did you bring therapist with you to help these people along or maybe support animals we had some awesome meetings like uh we had this one meeting where um the customer is yelling at us as we're walking out of the room because we had to go to another meeting it's like i want one right now <laughs> like okay we'll get you one and then um my favorite meeting it's a very large animation studio that we work with uh we get out of the meeting and and the, the meeting was only supposed to be 45 minutes the customer said we need all these enterprise features you get 45 minutes go and we had to cut the meeting an hour and a half into it so that we could go to our next. And so I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll catch up with you guys later. Bye. And as he, we're walking down the steps, the reseller that we're working with is a great partner. He's getting a, a text message saying, hey, value added reseller, add some value, get us on the beta program <laughs> right now. Well, that's fun. Yeah, it was fun stuff. But but these people, they're they're paid to know. And so... Uh, I think it's explainable technology. It's it's hard stuff, but you know we don't need to sell to a hundred thousand customers. We right, you've got a definable world. Yeah. So the new uh, the new D node is gets you front and back serviceability. It's one U, highly dense, and then you're ready for whenever there's another drive technology that you want to take advantage of. We are. We are and drop in larger capacity, whatever, because you're totally agnostic. And you're using QLC now for the value for metrics, but I guess it doesn't have to be. It could be could anything, be right? Yep. We're ready for PLC. We've been working with industry partners. We know what that looks like. We know that our endurance model works for it. I don't know what's beyond PLC. You're talking about uh, six bits per cell. and Can't so use SLC. We already used that one. Well, some of these drives are getting kind of weird, right? You know, some of these fast flash drives are... TLC masquerading as SLC and mm-hmm. things like that. So that's also an interesting uh, area to explore. But um, but yeah, yeah, there's really no limits to what you can do. So that's the new node, data node. What Are there others available? Do you have other hardware partners that are doing other weird stuff for data nodes? We do. We do. So uh, Mercury Computer, they're a ruggedized systems manufacturer. They work predominantly with uh, government customers putting systems in tanks and 
helicopters and places like that, um, they also are bringing a system out to market that they've created. Okay. So it, it kind of adheres to the series concept. Um, and it is essentially a 2U device that is one of the, it looks like the AIC system if you were to fold it in half. Okay. Right. So everything is front serviceable in this case. There's like a ribbon cable that connects the drives to the um, to the machinery in the, the bottom of it. Well, that's got to be fun, though, because if you were doing the hardware, that's not something you guys would probably go engineer on your own. That's, that's... I don't know anything about that stuff. Right, right. So with the hardware partners now, do you see opening it up more? We do. To let other people explore with you? We do. We do. So um, first, AIC and, and Mercury can go sell that, those systems to whoever they want to. Like We, we advise that they do. Um, B, uh, we have a few other partners that we're working with. We'll probably make some announcements about that towards the middle of this year. But um, there are kind of two dynamics to it. Dynamic one is we need systems that we prescribe. And then we have a few large systems manufacturers we're working with where they may want to prescribe their own equipment. And we would support that because they're also taking that product out to market through their channels. Okay. So it makes sense from us, for us from a business perspective. But the interesting thing is, um, you know, not only are we allowing customers to build these big clusters, but we're also running all of the infrastructure in our QA lab at the scale that's equivalent to or greater than our largest customers. So there's like a $35 million investment in hardware that is basically sitting at the service of our R&D and our QA team that makes sure that stuff just runs. And for that reason, we've gotten to six nines of availability across our install base in short time with uh, not 100,000 customers. So availability essentially becomes just statistics, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we have very large systems, which makes you more susceptible to failure. And despite that, despite not having 100,000 customers, we've managed to get to really high levels of resilience in the market. Well, that's a good selling point if you have this much data it's, it's under essential. your control, right? You, you can't take any other path. Um, we've heard, not at your scale, but really creative horror stories about how they factor their nines, oh. um, sometimes very small sample sizes and you know, run the thing and oh, it's solid. Let's, let's call this a five nine and, and off we go. So we look back six months across all of the field deployments. So if that's what goes massaging numbers then that's what we do what what what's the the most replaceable part for you guys is it it's got to be a drive it's the server that's in uh you probably are right it's the drives just because it's the most proliferated part mm, yeah yeah in terms of unit count there's more drives than anything right. else so we've got dpus now in these data nodes they're cruising along I want to talk about what that enables here in a second. On the compute nodes, though, still using ConnectX there, or what can we put the DPUs there to for an advantage? That is an interesting question. Okay. Um, we are exploring both what the opportunities are to do some amount of offload. In, so we have to buy a network adapter anyway. Mm -hmm. If that network adapter can offload certain functions, then that's great, right? So uh, Mellanox makes some great network adapters. They have all these fancy capabilities. The problem for us is all of those global codes that I just talked about, they're not like libraries you can download from GitHub, right? These are 
proprietary codes that we run. And so chip manufacturers and people that are doing systems on chips, they don't like hard code our IP into their machinery. Right. And so, um, so that makes it a little challenging. But the other place that we're exploring is at the client side. So let's say you have a NAS client or an object storage client. We've also identified with NVIDIA that there's stuff that you can do there to create um, a more safe enclave for data services. So kind of zero trust work happening there. And those are two kind of areas of exploration right now. But for the time being, our C nodes are x86 based. Uh, we work with Intel there. Um, we don't need any x86 machinery in the D box, but in the C node, we really value what they do. And uh, today we're on Ice Lake, but we'll be moving to oh, opposite. We're on Cascade Lake today, but we'll be moving to Ice Lake over the next couple of months. What do you need the most of there? It's uh, cores. So everybody asks us, like, okay, why don't you support AMD? AMD's the um, it's a different know, set of challenges. It is, um, but I think people view storage systems as largely being lane bound. And in our case, we're flop bound. And so we like Intel processors, A, because there's all these uh, instruction sets that are accelerated. And B, you, know, you just get a great processor for executing very complex operations. Mm -hmm. So um, all of our software runs in these systems in containers, but, uh, but we really need cores and, and gigahertz more than we need lanes. So then let's go back to the, the storage performance then and think about the DPU specifically because that's um, the QLC flash and the uh, Optane or, or Kyoxia, whatever you set in front of that, that hasn't changed. I mean, the shapes have changed and the way you've organized them structurally is, uh, is the same on yeah. the hardware side, right? But the DPU is somewhat, is, is novel. I mean, there's not, as I go through my mental list of who owns you know half of the storage market? The first couple that come to mind, none of them are using GPUs in this way. So it's novel beyond being really neat, though, in terms of functionally, what are your customers going to get from this in terms of what they can do with their data? I don't think they'll even know, to be honest. I think that these are things that are they're implementation details under the covers that just add to a more resilient, uh, lower power and higher performance, low cost end state, right? So it's just a system that's a, largely a black box to them. So when you measure it though, what are you going to say in terms of old system, old D node, new D node performances X percent better? It's wildly faster. Just A, because we made a jump to PCI Gen 4 from being on PCI Gen okay. 3 previously. So. I mean, you just you get, get that PCI acceleration makes your drives faster. Um, from a performance perspective, you're talking about something that's a little bit more than two X, um, which if you normalize that from two U down to, uh, how do I describe this? Yeah, you get about two X the performance per petabyte. Let's okay. say it like that. And that's good. Right. Um, from a right performance perspective, it's closer to 3x. And at the end of the day, it's a more modular unit. So customers can start really small. Like, you know, our, our physically small. Our entry point is only 300 terabytes of flash now. Uh, and you can scale from there. And if you want to buy bigger systems in the future, you can. We can mix and match. It's no problem. 
the other nice thing is, is you think about building RAID across enclosures, if now you have a unit of storage that's much smaller than the previous ones, well, then if you want to turn on RAID, you don't have to over-provision that much from a cost perspective. But aside from that, I don't think most customers will know or care that there's a DPU in there. Well, physically, no, but they'll care about the performance delta. Yeah. They do, yes, very much so. And you, you mentioned power a little bit. Don't I don't want you to go past that because I think that's an important consideration too, especially at scale. Mm -hmm. What are your customers telling you about power consumption? Um, Everyone's got a green initiative or to, to do better there if they can, right? So uh, there's a few things. Um, one is if you look at the drive form factory, you've got something that is roughly now 50% larger than a high capacity hard drive. Let's say a ruler costs five watts, a hard drive costs five watts. Well, I just saved 50% on that just by going to flash as opposed to hard drives. But the interesting thing is that flash drives, they don't, they don't spin, like, that's not revolutionary. <laughs> it is revolutionary, but not revolutionary. But, but not, not to this audience, yes. Um, so, so when you're not using them, then they don't draw as much power. And interestingly, we realized through uh, working with our biggest customer over last summer that it's only when you're writing to them that they actually draw power. If you build the largest AI storage system in the world that's reading, reading, reading data as they're training, it's going to draw almost no power because you're not writing data. Hmm. So writes are what are electrically expensive. And um, what we realized throughout the summer is that we have the only system in the world that is fully disaggregated, shared everything, that we can essentially control the writes across all the flash drives by controlling the threads of the C-node CPUs. And so, um, so with series, we kind of step down from a form factor perspective. It's slightly lower power per petabyte. It's not wildly lower. But we also added a function or a capability over the last couple months that we call the universal power controller. And imagine you're building an archive out of flash. It sounds stupid, but a lot of our customers are doing it now. If you think about archive not being something that's slow, but rather being the source of truth. Mm -hmm. And people realize, oh, it just makes more sense to put all my data in this thing that I can compute on in place. So your archive is now your high performance storage system. But the point is that um, if you're building an archive, you may not expect or want to use all the power of your flash estate. And if you previously, if you just had like one of our partner's systems engineers kind of prescribe storage they say okay you have to spec out your rack for peak power and so you take the whatever's rated on the side of the the systems and you say okay just whatever the sum of that is is what you do and if you go into um full rack scale you're at like 20 kilowatts of you know vast stuff that you'd have to build now 20 kilowatts is a lot most data centers don't support 20 kilowatt racks right uh, five, 10 is kind of the average that we find in the market. But what we realize is that if customers aren't running these things, writing to them full tilt all the time, then we don't need to specify to that power level. You just have to specify to what's actually being used at any given time. And typically it's half of that or more. And so what we did is we added this basically thread management capability within our system. It says, okay, there's a new object in the user interface that is a rack. And that rack has a maximum PDU capability. And you may put systems in that rack that could trip that PDU e easily, but let's build a facility that manages the I.O. load going into those enclosures such that you never exceed the threshold. And so, for example, if you start creeping up because 
maybe some application starts writing faster than you expect, you can just start shooting nodes until you get to a maximum capability that's under the peak threshold of the P PDUs. So customers that would have had to specify, let's say 20 kilowatt racks previously can get, then get the same job done with like eight kilowatts mm. now, and they never find themselves in a bad place. So our biggest customer took us to that because they were already over-provisioned because uh, they have very few of these C nodes per all the flash that they buy. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were like, yeah, if something really crazy starts happening, then we're going to trip our, <laughs> our PDUs. And we said, okay, well, why don't we take care of that for you before? Yeah, before it happens. Yeah. Uh, so we've done that. They've, they've been a great partner. That's uh, an exciting conversation and, and so much potential. Um, I, I do, I know we've been, I don't even know how long we've been talking. It's probably been an hour, but um, I am really curious though, because you talk about all these needs and we, we started early on about this analytics notion of no one ever wanting to delete anything anymore, of having the data available forever, creating more data, iterating on it with your AI models, learning from historical and then new information as it's coming in deploying it, rerunning it, you know, this is a, a cycle. So having all of these, uh, all this data on, on performance storage seems the only path forward to be able to get to this 87, was it trillion? Trillion. Yeah, it's a big number. Um, is, when you talk to your customers that are active, that are really engaged on, on AI, that's gotta be part of the story. Like how do we get this data now from the storage infrastructure to DGX or to whatever to, to get this work done. What's the angle there or what are you getting involved in there with your customers to be a good partner to help them do that? Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, so um, we're also announcing that we have just... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for the, the softball there. We're also announcing that know. we just got a um just got into nvidia's superpod program so i actually did know that so you didn't no oh okay then <laughs> i should actually more prep notes okay um yeah so so uh, we've been working with nvidia forever right uh we're building massive nvme over fabrics clusters those you know nvme over fabrics was written by mellanox acquired by nvidia uh we use connectx we do all sorts of stuff for ai customers um, we have GPU direct storage support so that we can blast data into these really expensive machines. And so the next logical conclusion is, okay, let's let's get formal with their um, their reference architecture program for very, very large clusters of GPUs. They call this superpod. So um, throughout time, there have been disaster stories that have come from people trying to apply NAS to these new applications, mm -hmm. right? And every Every legacy NAS vendor will say, okay, yeah, we're good for AI if you just put flash in the system. But the reality is like all this east-west traffic between these filers ends up creating just a collision of I.O. that overwhelms the storage systems. Uh, and so we've seen customers have to just rip out wholesale investments that they've made on very, very large flash enterprise systems. And so the interesting thing with us in the SuperPod program is that we're the only enterprise NAS vendor that's in this program right now. Everybody hmm. else is told you can either choose Vast or go learn parallel Something file else, systems, yeah. right? And parallel file systems, you know, I, I used to be in the original Luster team. Uh, I know the, the, the good and the bad that comes from that. It, it can be some pain, like you kind of need a PhD to run half of these systems. And so 
Um, what we're taking the world to is a an idea where you don't need to tier, and that's really important actually in these AI environments because if you fall off of a flash cliff onto some like hard drive storage system that a vendor tries to sell you, well, your performance goes down by like 50x, and that would mm -hmm. kill your GPU efficiency. So we say, okay, you don't have to you don't have to pay a tax for flash now. Customer's great. Uh, number two is you get embarrassing parallelism from a storage system that's just exposing NFS. It's a Every systems administrator in the world can spell NFS. Uh, can you spell parallel file systems? Not everyone can. There's like a thousand tunables in uh, the client for GPFS, just as an example. And so people don't know what to do with that. And these become like single point solutions that customers have to buy if they want some sort of AI initiative. And then you've got Vast over here saying, yeah, we can give you that performance, but you can also use it for Splunk. You can also use it for backup. You can also use it for Kubernetes. You can use it for everything. And so it becomes the easy button for customers to push. And, you know, historically you would think a lot of this artificial intelligence work is at, is, is the domain of just the hyperscalers and these leading like uh, consumer internet companies. And we're finding that that's not the case at all. And you've got very large commercial organizations that are making massive investments. We were selected last summer for a customer that spent over $300 million in GPUs just for one big system. And they're not like Facebook or Baidu or anything like mm -hmm. that. This is an organization that is just doing financial data modeling. And so these things are starting to happen elsewhere in the wild. And Well, they prefer to monetize that investment, though, too, right? Because for every minute those things aren't running. Oh, yeah. You're... You can't just be sitting idle on those. We, uh, you know, I, I love, so the customer is very secretive. Like they don't tell us everything that they're doing, but I love to just conceive of the meeting where somebody walks in and says, I have an idea. And that's probably going to cost us about half a billion dollars to go. Well, hear me out. <laughs> hear me out. Hear me out. Right. And then they make the bet. Yeah. And we find these bets happening in all sorts of different types of industries, obviously automotive, but well beyond that, you've got natural language processing, computer vision, all this stuff's happening in People are buying big. So in that same motion, you want them to make the bet on Vast and, and try you guys out because you do feel like you've got a, a demonstrable uh, advantage, especially with these large data sets. Mm -hmm. What's a POC look like? How do customers start to engage with you? Um, I imagine it's perhaps more challenging to go take half a petabyte of, of stuff and go put it on you know, storage and figure it out, but what does that motion look like? I, I think we've been fortunate that we've kind of delivered on what we've told uh, the different partners that we have in the industry, mm -hmm. what we were going to do. And so, um, so for example, uh, we work with Abnet as our U.S. manufacturer, and they have a cache of POC equipment that they ship to customers all the time. And, you know, the funny thing about software companies is typically POCs are really hard unless you're deploying on some cloud platform because mm -hmm. you have to go find somebody to help you with the hardware part of it and it's not something that's on their books and so they have no capital and blah, 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 or maybe no venture capital. And in our case, we built this framework and this go-to-market model that accommodates for that. So we have no need for involving other partners. Customers can just call us and say, we say, okay, here, go talk to Abnet. They'll take care of everything and you just get a turnkey appliance delivered to your door. And our business is so large that you know, no, it probably is a little bit exclusionary here, but half a petabyte isn't a big deal for us. So mm -hmm. that just becomes the POC unit that customers take, and it's not a it's not a problem. 
what's the deployment look like when you get on site and, and you're dropping off this or Avnet's dropping off this gear? Mm -hmm. What's day zero look like for a customer? You're done everything in half day zero. So uh, you get typically three boxes. Uh, you take out the switches, you take out the enclosure, you take out the servers, you rack and stack them, and then you turn the system on. It is an appliance. That easy. Yeah, we work with you in advance. So we have this kind of site survey that we do. We get IP address range. It's always the IP addresses. It's always the DNS always, and IP addresses. Always the IP. Right. And as long as you get those, you're good to go. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny because to think about the you know, quick deploy sort of modality on something that's that large, not in rack you, but in capacity is pretty uncommon. I mean, we'll see that you know, from an SMB system, right? Be online in 15 minutes and it works most of the time. Mm -hmm. Not always, but... Um, but we it, even get like non-contiguous IP address ranges. Like you can have like 131 to 145 and then you can also get for these other file servers and get like 203 to 242 and you just roll with it. No, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. It's hard to imagine now with the density of what you can get with these systems. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy. Your customers, I'm sure will be thrilled and uh, it'll be fun to watch what you guys do with new, bigger drives, new technology. I mean, this, it's an exciting time to be able to take advantage of this new hardware. I mean, the inflection point we are right now with, I mean, you're talking about Gen 4, but 5's not so far away. Things right. like CXL, things, I mean, there's so much going on right now. Yeah. And for you guys to be kind of in the catbird seat, to be willing to be creative, I think is pretty cool too because uh, you know most legacy providers won't don't won't can't take that risk so you've got a great opportunity we we like the idea that we're challenging the industry to invent and i think we're fortunate like we're we're kind of the hot growth company in the space i haven't talked much about our business but we've built something that's very significant and now the industry wants to partner with us they want to know what we think the future should look like and that's a fun position to be in because then you can just really start collaborating and we have good ideas they have good ideas and you know to to the point you were making about some of these legacy vendors some of these technology companies have great ideas that they didn't think they could implement because of the legacy infrastructure of the past and we're kind of just an open book and we're saying just give us the crazy stuff and we'll figure out a way to make it work no, I mean, I just, I still, I just can't quite get out of my head that we were working on an evaluation of a NAS system that probably took up more rack space than yours in our lab in, in Cincinnati. And each node had four SSDs in it. That's, that's big. That's not big. It's physically big. <laughs> I know. Rack you big. Four. And, and more complex. Because it's got it's not six minute abs, it's four minute abs. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm jazzed to go see this thing. We should uh, finish up here so we can get over there and take a look at Avnet. Sounds good. All right, let's roll. Thanks for doing this, Jeff. Appreciate it. It was fun.